Welcome to the Conscious Conversations podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Nick Paladino King. And I'm Nitin Gerg. We are transformational coaches and yogis from the San Francisco Bay Area. And this is a podcast for people looking to take their lives to the next level. Through these conversations, we aim to raise the consciousness of our lives, the lives of our listeners, and the wholeness. So get ready to join us on this great adventure of life by taking a moment to settle in, become fully present in this moment, and see where the journey takes you next. Welcome into Conscious Conversations, episode 15. Today we talk to Dr. Francesca Ferrando of New York University. We dive into post-humanism, how it can be a lens to change our lives, really learn from the past to help us create and manifest a much more abundant and harmonious future. We talk about gender, where it's going, where it's been, and most importantly, about how if we continue to keep the human being at the center of the universe, it will be the demise of us as a species. You don't want to miss this episode. It's thought-provoking. It's deep. It's real. It's honest. And as always, it's conscious. So plug in, enjoy, tune in, and get ready to learn all about post-humanism. Okay, welcome into Conscious Conversations. I'm your host, Nick Paladino King, today with Dr. Francesca Ferrando. Uh, she is a philosopher of the post-human. She's a professor at NYU, author, speaker extraordinaire. Francesca, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Nick. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm super excited to talk about you and, and your topics that you are so passionate about. And um, I was looking at some of your stuff and some of your videos before we jumped on. And I'm just really excited to learn more about the way you see the world uh, as it was, as it is, and as it as it will be. So I, I would love for you to take a couple minutes, uh, kind of tell tell me, tell our listeners about who you are, maybe a little bit about your story of, of what's gotten you to be so passionate about post-humanism and, and transhumanism. And then we can go from there and, and determine if uh, technology is enlightened or not. Sound good? That sounds wonderful. Yeah. So my name is Francesca. I'm I've always been as, you know, someone who is searching for, for meaning in anything you do. You know, it can be through, through dance, through food, through philosophy, through mathematics, through anything. That, there must be meaning. There, there is, a, I think, the basis of uh, existential honesty. That it's something that, that you need in order to be loyal to yourself and to your vision and to this manifestation. So that journey brought me to many different uh, places and spaces and times in my life. So I've been, at one point, uh, you know, traveling was my university and I had to live in different countries and speak different languages and eat different foods. And so I went pretty much many, many places, many places in Africa, in Europe, in the Americas, a little less in Asia, it was a little harder for me to reach there because of the distances. But uh, in Asia as well, I've been in some places there, um, and I was always searching. And then uh, I realized that uh, one of the reasons why I was here was to, to share visions. And, uh, and one uh, was writing, true writing. And when you are traveling and when you are living in different places and everything is so exciting, 
you often don't have the time to write. If you're in the moment, you're not going to take, mm -hmm. you know, like your pen or you're not going to take your camera to take a picture. If you're in the moment, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I realized that if I was going to keep doing that, which was amazing, uh, you can call it the hippie life, you can call it whatever you want. It was pretty much kind of, you know, you can think of maybe the hippie life, which was lovely. Uh, but I was not going to be able to write. So I had to go back to my city where I was born, Turin, and uh, to write because I knew that city already had a lot of the teachings from the, te from the city and they knew that I could write there. So I went back, I, I, I wrote, I was first writing novels and that was for me kind of being the divine because you can really explore anything in your mind without any type of censorship. Like you are the one who mm -hmm. create anything you want, uh, the characters, the story. And after doing that for, uh, for years, I realized that I was, um, um, I needed a, um, a change, uh, like you always do in life, you know, when you get to the end of the dessert, it's time for the coffee or it's time to, to not to eat anything. I mean, there is always a change. And the change for me was the, what I was going to be seen and how to describe that. And the language had to be different. So I was writing novel for, novels for, for, for big audiences. And that had pushed me to write with, with a sim very simple language with a lot mm -hmm. of slang. And, and I was not uh, there anymore. I wanted to be very refined in the vision. And also, I was talking about how existence was, but I realized that existence never just is, is always, is always being. And mm -hmm. I realized that in order to do that, I had to have a very clear tool of, um, set of tools in order to describe what I was seeing. So there was philosophy. And so philosophy came into my life and I, that's what I, I, I went into a PhD and, um, and teaching and, uh, and writing philosophy because that allowed me to be very specific about, uh, my vision and what uh, I was going to share. And so that brought me to posthumanism, which is one of the few philosophies that changed my life. Not many philosophers or philosophy did change my life, actually very few. If you think of people, Nietzsche is one of them. Friedrich Nietzsche changed my life when I was 16 year old. And later on, you know, there are a few others, but as a movement, feminism changed my life and mm -hmm. posthumanism. And, uh, and posthumanism really brought me to understand everything that surrounded me as, as part of me without any specific center that is more centered than others. So that was getting rid of anthropocentrism. That you, the human could no longer be at the center because at this stage in history, it is suicidal. And if this is our dream, my dream is not to suicide myself. It can be one of the dreams. I'm not saying it is bad or wrong, but it's just not my dream. Then I realized that that was one of the messages that people are ready to hear is going beyond the human. So this is very a very powerful message that posthumanism is bringing to the 21st century and to now. Uh, so this is why I am very passionate about this. Yeah, wow. I mean... So much stuff though already to to unpack about your your journey to where you are and 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 where you're going. Can you? Oh, so many questions I want to ask. Can we? Let's. I'll slow it down. We'll slow it down. Can you describe what posthumanism is? Is there a way you can uh, kind of enlighten us on that topic before we go deeper into it? Yes, Nick. That's uh, very important. I worked uh, a lot in trying to bring clarity 
to what uh, posthumanism is. Because when I entered the field, which was uh, realistically like entering the posthumanism field was around 2007, 2008. And at the time there was a lot of confusion. A lot of people would use uh, many terms as they were synonyms and words are never synonyms. They always have different meanings. And so people were using transhumanism and posthumanism and anti-humanism all as it was one. And yes, we're all, all one, but we're all many. And you know, that's plurality and uh, unity at the same time. Mm -hmm, and yeah. so, so transhumanism is uh, usually very clear. You know, transhumanism is about uh, enhancing the human to science and technology and radical speculation. That's kind of clear if you look into that. But when you go into posthumanism, a lot of people were so confused. A lot of people misunderstood that posthumanism was transhumanism. And other people just had no clue. So people would ask me about what posthumanism is. So first I would take half an hour to explain. And by the time you explain, they're just looking at the window saying, oh my God, <laughs> that's <laughs> so confusing, you know. Eyes glazed over. <laughs> totally, totally, like falling asleep. Like, okay, that's not working. All right, so I realized that that was not working. And that, uh, you know, as, as much as you could define transhumanism clearly within 30 seconds, we should be also able to define posthumanism in maybe not 30 seconds because comes of the reconstruction of postmodernism, but at least one to two minutes, no, no more than that. So then I, this is, a, I wouldn't say it's a reduction, but it's definitely maybe simplification, but it does help. So I define posthumanism through these three layers. The first layer, I believe it's pretty easy to understand, especially nowadays, which is post slash humanism meaning the human as many. And this is, again, if you look at your, your own family of, of society, of all, all the different people around us, there is no one human that can be mm -hmm. defined as the human. Unfortunately, this is, has been the case in the history of, uh, for instance, intellectual, uh, um, in, in, intellectual theories and, and academia where only few people were allowed you know, in, or politics, you know, where like all the presidents have been white and male apart from Obama. So there mm -hmm. are issues with that. But nowadays, I guess a lot of people understand that that doesn't work anymore, that we are beautifully different and we are many. And that's the power of being a species. Otherwise, you know, you are one. But even an organism is not just one. Even as, a not, is, even as an individual, I am not one. I have to think about all the microbes and the entities that live in my, in my body, the, 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 the biota that live in my guts. I mean, I'm already a multiverse myself. So already mm -hmm, yeah. I'm not just yeah, but the species obviously cannot be one. If it was one, there would be no species. It would be dead. The species come through diversity. That's why when you have only families that reproduce between themselves, is you get to the end of it. That's why you need mm -hmm. you to, to multiply, connecting to diverse, a diversity of communities. That's when you have a species. So that one has been, you know, like kind of easy to understand because from the 70s on, a lot of studies have underlined the importance of human diversity. And my, many, many, many critical race studies and gender studies, post-colonial studies, uh, queer studies, you name it, so many. So this one, it's, I think it's very much clear. The second one is, um, it's clear, but it's still, it's going to, I think, take probably around 20 years to be fully embraced by society. Unfortunately, it's a little uh, slow, the embracing mm -hmm. of this understanding, but it's going to happen. It's a post-anthropocentrism. So the idea that, you know, if you think about it, not all traditions, but definitely some hegemonic traditions, not only in the Western canon, but definitely absolutely also in the Western canon, 
that put the human at the, uh, at the not just even at the center, at the top of the hierarchy, where yeah. there is a hierarchy that is being constructed, and then the human is supposed to be the best, you know, the best of all creation, the one that is in charge, um, the most evolved one, the most intelligent one. This has to stop because this kind of, uh, you can, you, we can call it many different things, but you can also call it obscurity. This, this kind of misunderstanding is bringing us to a collapse. So right now, number one reason why we may get extinct is not a meteor falling on the, on the planet, is not uh, some animals, you know, like uh, eating us all, it's not virus, it's us. We mm -hmm. are uh, at risk of extinction because of our own behavior, because of climate change, because of all the issues that are created, but not understanding that we are not separated from the planet, that we are part of the planet. So this kind of understanding of us as separate, as the most evolved, as the one in charge is actually killing us. This is why it's very, very important to understand this. If we want to keep going as a species, again, you know, like Nietzsche, many, many other philosophers and philosophies go beyond good and evil. So if we get a thing, <laughs> we get a thing. But if we don't want to get a thing, that's really important to understand that we can no longer think of us as separated, as the one in charge, as the best one, as the most evolved one. And unfortunately, this kind of uh, narrative is present not only at the you know, levels that you may expect, like you know, mythologies, Hollywood, religion, but also in scientific language. Check, you know, like, um, I would say 95% of the documentaries, the way the human is presented is always as you know, the, the most evolved in biology and science. So this is really deep ingrained in our society. So it's going to take a while also because I see that unfortunately, I don't want to say unfortunate, but I see, that education, even at the younger levels, is still very anthropocentric. So I read, you know, books for kids that are super anthropocentric. So, you know, the more you portray these ideas, the more they're going to be part of the manifestation of the human. So that needs a lot of work. And the yeah. third one, uh, and, then, and then we go back to open discussion, is the post-dualism. So post-dualism is definitely, uh, I think, the, probably the most relevant one because you can uh, include the, the two layers that we presented before as post-dualistic. And post-dualism, in simple words, means that there is no way we can understand existence through dualistic frames. Now, this does not mean that duality does not exist. For example, uh, the Tao is a very good example of some form of duality that is embraced as shifting, as evolving, as moving. The Tao has two colors, but they also have like in, inside of these colors, there is the other color. And there is, you know, a, a wave that separates them because they are not separate. They are like mm -hmm. the ocean and they are uh, interconnected. But I believe that although dualities do exist, uh, they are not at the core of, of existence, and that there is always a rainbow, there is always an infinity, there, there is always a multiplicity. So with dualities, although I'm not against them, they can be very tricky because that wave that separates the two colors can eventually become a line, and the line can be shifted, and all of a sudden, you have a hierarchy. You have one color on top of mm -hmm. the other. And then you have the shade, you know, the, the, the presence and the shade of the presence. So out of this, you can see many types of discrimination, like sexism and racism and ethnocentrism and speciesism and biocentrism, you name it. So I would say that post for me is the most important one, but it's also the 
most difficult to grasp and the most difficult to, uh, to present because it goes really deeply into our own understanding of ourselves as not separated from existence, but as part of existence, as co-creator, as co-manifesting. But this is, I would say, the most important layer. Yeah. And the second we start using language, we create duality. So we're trying to use language to get to a, a oneness. Yeah. Something I've been thinking about lately is that when you were talking about, you said something, you said, if, if the human is at the center, then that's going to lead to to suicide. And it's like, man, our, our ego, I think sometimes is so cosmic that we we think we're the only thing in this universe. And and to your point, we think that we're the most important thing and most evolved. And it's, I'm just hearing such a limiting belief in that sense too, that if we think right now we are the highest manifestation possible, how much are we limiting the reality of, of the human, of the planet, of the universe? Um, so I love this idea that if, if, if the human is at the center, that that is what's going to lead to our, our ultimate demise. Um, Hmm. It's so interesting too to hear you speaking from a philosophical lens that I I I almost hear you reflecting my belief system through a, through a yogic lens. Really, we're we're saying the same thing, and I'm hearing such a non-judgmental viewpoint. I even heard you catch yourself say something like, you know, like, oh, this isn't going to be good, and you caught yourself and you said, no, 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 that's actually that's not what I meant. And it's so refreshing to hear someone coming from another lens of a universal viewpoint. And a universal understanding that we're all connected and we're all part of this thing. And even when you were talking about how within yourself, you're a universe or a multiverse. And that is that is what I believe all of the, you know, the spiritual lineages are saying and, and now science and philosophy. And it's just so refreshing, Francesca, to hear someone coming at universality from, from a different lens. I just want to reflect, just acknowledge that and say, I'm just so impressed that you've gotten to this space of, of your ability to see the wholeness within, within the individuality too. Um, very cool. Thank you so much, Nick. And I always appreciate your comments and insights throughout all the episodes of these beautiful conversations, conscious conversations. And I always find myself, you know, very aligned to, to the views and, uh, and perspective that you share. And I, yeah, I think that it's, um, something that, uh, it's very important to always remind us that there is no one path, you know, there are uh, infinite mm-hmm. paths because that, wa- that is um, the only thing that I can see that is really bringing out manifestation is the poetic art, is uh, what, for instance, in the Hindu tradition is called Lila, is the cosmic game, uh, is the play, is the game, is the joy, is, uh, is the bliss. That doesn't mean that it's going to be uh, with a happy, happy ending, a lot of... Uh, French movies actually don't have happy endings and they're still wonderful movies. So it's not really, you know, like uh, what kind of story are you telling, but how are you embracing that story? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I think, I think that um, something that probably it would be very good to, to think of as a species is what kind of stories are we creating? Because we could literally be creating any kind of story, any kind of story, once we realize that we are part of the cosmic game, that we are the co-creators, the co-actors, the co-electricians, the co-everything. Why are we deciding to create some stories instead of others? Now, mm-hmm. there is a beauty in nightmares. Some people love uh, horror movies, you know, 
Now that's when the individual choice come in and the, the artist choice. So what kind of story do you want to create? And in my life, I realized that I'm not a fan of horror stories and horror movies. I don't like to have nightmares and I like to have, um, you know, a serene life. So in trying to manifest in that, uh, and I'm respecting people who actually are into horror story that and I'm trying cre to create horror story in, in their lives and they're very successful at it. I know a lot of people doing that and that's fine, but at least be conscious of that because some mm -hmm. people do that, but then they are miserable and they say, oh my God, my life is terrible. But that's what they're really creating, you know? And they say, it's okay to create a horror movie. Some horror movies are beautiful, you know, in their own ways, but then be mindful of that and be happy about your horror movie that you are creating with your own life. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing I'd like to say on this is that um, I'm not sure, actually I don't believe that most people are creating horror moving, movies as a choice. I think that a lot of people yeah, are creating those because that's what they were taught. So for yep. instance, if you look at a lot of movies, Hollywood movies are a great example, 95% of them portray stories that are only going to bring you to a miserable life, literally. You know, there is the hero who got to kill all the people in Pakistan and she should be the hero because we should be aligning with him. That mm -hmm. is a horror movie, you know? And, and so I think that is so many people just, you know, growing up watching those kind of movies, eventually think that, you know, oh, that's the story that I should be embracing. Even if maybe I'm not even white and I'm not even a man, I'm just going to, you know, for instance, I don't know, identify with this character. That's, that is a great... Um, he was not a philosopher, he was a literary critic, uh, Edward Said, was a wonderful Egyptian, born in Egypt, and then Egyptian-American, and then he moved to the United States and he was teaching at Columbia University, and he wrote man, many books, including Orientalism. And there is uh, this great uh, moment where he says, you know, I was a child and I was watching Aladdin in Egypt, and Aladdin was actually speaking about my land, this area, and I, I, I did not recognize as my land because he was not talking about my culture, but I loved it. And I, you know, and I didn't even think that I was supposed to be the bad one because I was from this region mm. uh, until I, I realized later that, uh, and that happened to me with gender. You know, I, I, I had a lot of books in my, in my house and I read a lot and I watched a lot of movies and I always identify with the male gender, not because I thought it was male, but just because all the books I read were written by men. So they were always have uh, the, the masculine form. And I didn't realize it until I was, 17 years old, when I, I was writing a poem, at the time I used to write poems, and I realized that I was writing as a he, and it's like, why am I writing as a he? And then it took me years to realize that everything until then that I have read, everything, everything, you name it, like philosophy, art, everything was written and created by men. I was like, wow. <laughs> so from there on, for two, three years, I just did the opposite. I read everything that was not written by men, you know, or people mm. who were considered men or, you know, not even considered that men at the time because at the time only people who were men were allowed education. But anyway, so that's very interesting. So on one side is like the story that you decide consciously, consciously to create. Even if it's a horror movie, you are aware that your life is a horror movie and you're okay with it. But then there is the side of it when you find yourself caught in the horror movie, but you are not aware of that and you are repeating the horror movie because until you have because since you were very young, you've been exposed to that kind of narrative. And so then if you are a female, whatever, you're going to be raped and you're going to be, be married, mm -hmm. be unhappy. And if you are a man, you're going to rape and kill and then maybe kill yourself. I mean, these narratives have been so pushed into people that they almost feel like normal. 
So this is when I feel like, wow, there is so much envisioning that we do, and we need to be so selective about what kind of things we read and what thing, kind of movies we watch and what kind of language we use, because everything we do, literally everything is part of the manifestation, is affecting and affecting everything else. That's, that's so beautifully said. One of my teachers constantly says, he says, whatever you think, say, and do, you manifest. And I think if, if we take a second and pause, and if we listen, he, he says, whatever we think, say, and do, we manifest. That means the good, the bad, and everything in between. And and something I've been talking about lately is moving from being the victim to the creator. So we're, again, we're using kind of similar language here. And, and something I used to say when I would teach a lot more about stress management, maybe five, 10 years ago, I would always tell people that, you know, stress is a choice, right? Or creating this horror story like you're talking about is a choice. And, I, and I've realized that I actually don't agree with that language anymore that I was using. I think stress or happiness or your mood is a choice once you have awareness, right? Once you're able to step out of the the story or the Maya, the illusion and say, well, wait a second, I do have the ability to choose how I want to be. I do have the ability to choose how I want to think and speak and what I want to manifest and, and what I don't want to manifest. And then we get to step into an empowered state of being where we get to decide, well, do I believe in that movie or do I believe in the way my father modeled, you know, or with the way my mother modeled, you know, maybe I want to do things differently. And I'm so with you that until we, until we realize those things and we take a step back, then we can start to have choice. And yes, I, I am a hundred percent with you that if we want to create a horror story in our lives, if we do that from conscious choice, then we're still living in empowerment. And and what I've noticed is when I do those things, it's like, oh, well, you know, for example, go out on a Friday night and have, you know, too many drinks. But it's like, if I do that consciously and I wake up on Saturday and I'm hungover, it's like, well, I chose this path. This is exactly what I knew I was getting myself into. And as a result, I don't suffer. I might be in discomfort, but I'm no longer suffering because I chose to create that reality. And I, that is something we can all learn. And, I, and I'm with you. I think we need more modeling of this. Um, and you started to talk about gender, which is, I think, is a fantastic kind of segue here too. Where do you see, where do you see gender going? I'm, I'm interested in that in terms of as we're looking into 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years down the road. I mean, I, I personally look at things in terms of masculine and feminine energy. And I, and I try not to look at things through the lens of male and female anymore. And, and internally, I actually consider myself to be androgynous in terms of my soul and, and my being. So I'd be interested, especially since you, you teach about gender studies, like where do you see gender going? Where do you see roles going? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. In order to answer to this question, I'm going to go into macro history and um, look at the history that we never studied, that is not even considered history, it's considered prehistory. That prehistory is 99 of our history on this planet. I'm talking about the mm. Paleolithic time and also some of the Neolithic time. If you look at the time, the conception of gender was very different. First of all, the divine was represented at least 95% as, as female, but the female was not female. The female was the creator, the generator that was not just even human. In many of these figurines that have been found 
And some of the, those dates, like, you know, 100,000 years ago, 80,000 years ago, 35,000 years ago, those figurines, most of them are not just human, they are hybrids. Uh, they are, um, there is uh, the female element and there is the snake element. There is the female element and the cow element. Uh, there is the human element and there is the plant animal. These are all mm. hybrids. Now, um, we don't have archives the way we consider archives, which is written archives of those times. We have archives in the ways that the people at the time consider archives. Uh, so, for instance, we have uh, cave paintings, we have uh, potteries, especially coming from the Neolithic on, but even from the Paleolithic time. Uh, we have different ways of archives. We have DNA from the time, we have uh, sites where people used to, to spend time. And from what we understand of the time, uh, the gender roles were very different from our understanding nowadays. Um, it is a, a very interesting time uh, when uh, they the let's say symbolic power shifted which is uh, around the iron age which is also when we have also the first instances of uh, uh, institutionalized war so before that we have a human who is uh, i'm not saying peace with nature is not even separated from nature the human in order to survive needs to know nature perfectly because you need to follow the animals and you cannot just kill all the animals because then they cannot reproduce and humans would also die. You cannot get all the plants in an area because then next time you go, because at the time humans were still nomadic, living nomadic lives, then you go one year from now and there is no plants. So humans in the Paleolithic times didn't have this notion of being separated from. And this is, for instance, is still very present in all the native cosmologies around the world where the human is not considered in separation from everything else. Um, so when we start to have this shift is when humans start to live in, um, in uh, living in settlements that are, not, that are no longer nomadic. So now you have uh, an area that becomes your home and you need to start to protect it, not only from other non-human animals, but also from other humans because now you have a crop that you want for yourself and for your mm -hmm. tribe. From here on, we have, uh, this I'm talking about historically speaking, this is not uh, fabulation. Historically speaking, we have the beginning of war, the beginning of slavery. And also with the shift, the symbolic shift, where, where the divine started to be represented more and more as male. Uh, with the final shifting comes uh, around, uh, let's say 5,000 years um, before the common era, with the beginning of writing, and it's very interesting that we always only study history from the beginning of writing, because mm -hmm. from there on, we have a clear uh, mindset that should be still represented who we are right now. So humans who live in settlements, who are uh, at war and take war as granted, which was not for most of our existence as a species, who take slavery as granted, which is still mm -hmm. happening in slavery all over the world in many different ways, uh, who and there is also a symbolic shift in gender. When the genders become now the female is not just part of the tribe, becomes the mothers who, whose father must be known. Because like, if you look at this, uh, for instance, bonobos, uh, who have um, as much DNA as, uh, as chimpanzees um, connected to ours. So we really share 98.5, I think, of our DNA with bonobos. Such a great it's stat. A lot. That's such yeah. a good reminder. Yeah, it's a good demand. And they uh, are, first of all, very peaceful as a, as a species. 
Uh, and they, their youngs, everyone just take care of the youngs. Uh, it's, uh, it's not there is no father, no, there is no father recognizes a father. Uh, and that's probably was the case for humans too. So the, one of the beliefs, but this is a little more fabulation, is that when, so when, when humans realized that pregnancy was actually coming out of a copulation, then the male wanted to know who, who were their uh, biological children. And so then we have the history of, okay, now this is my wife and no one else can have sex with her because I, I need to know that these are my children. Mm-hmm. But that's one of the stories because we still have matriarchal society in which this is not happening. For instance, China, there is an area in which there is still matriarchal society going on. And in that area, it's very interesting. So the, um, it's a, a, the, the male state to live with the mother for the rest of their lives. And they just like the whole family tribe take care of the children. So I'm not so sure about this theory when, you know, the male realizes, oh, now I want my children, because the child is not necessarily biological. It's, it's a connection that goes well beyond that. And my husband was rec- recently at a wedding, and there was this child that was so greatly loved by everyone of the family. And he was very surprised because he didn't know who was the parents of this child. So he asked, mm. who are the ch- parents of the child? And the story goes that the mother of this child, who is the wife, of the brother of the of the person who was getting married had an affair with someone else then she got in jail for other reasons and the father her husband who was not the biological father took this child as his and he's get you know he is um uh, how you say like uh, uh, um, the child is growing with him and his family while the mother is mm-hmm. in jail and this is not even his biological child but they are just surrounding this child with love and I thought it's such a great reminder. Ch- children don't have to be biological. You know, children are people who are young who come to your life and you become that figure for them that bring guidance and love and serenity and, and presence. And uh, so going back to us about your question. Okay, so we have most of our time as a species in which the female, which is not female, is a separation from the, you know, not in a dualistic sense. Eh? So. Mm-hmm. Let's not go into the dualism of female-male, because the female, again, was the um, generative force, which was connected to everything, uh, from male to non-human animals, to plants, to everything, was the nature, the force of nature. That was what the representation was. So we have from there, which, again, all the divine was female in those sense, not in separation from male, to a shift around 5,000 before the common era, they became clearly done 3,000 before the common era, all throughout uh, clearly the Iron Ages, when the male is more and more adopted as the symbolic uh, figure throughout the planet. In some areas, mm, more slowly, in other areas, it's never been the case, and some areas are still matri- matrifocal, but that's became the case. So now we are, I think, at the end of that world when we realize that everything and everyone is divine. And I want to say something else about this shift, and then we go to the future of what you were asking about, where are we going with gender? So there is a very interesting case in an island in Greece. And in Greece, it's a very interesting example with mythology where Gaia, the goddess, becomes Zeus. So Gaia was the most important goddess of Greek mythology until uh, Zeus became the most important one. So Gaia was the female... Exactly, very interesting. Gaia was the, the, the female Earth. She was the ma- most important god. God uh, beyond any gender, she was the god most important of anyone. And then we have a shift with Zeus, and Zeus is the fam- the, the father figure who is also the one who can create 
can have a pregnancy through uh, to the brain. So there are gods and goddesses that are actually created by Zeus uh, in a shift from the female generative power now we're to the male generative power. But you know, Zeus is also into many other things like uh, that we can describe later on. Now I want to say this because it's very interesting. So when we have this shift that took uh, around uh, 1,000 years at least uh, in, in Greece, there, there was one island in which at one point there is a famine. And so everyone is dying. Everyone is uh, so hungry that there are actually cases of cannibalism that, that, that were found archaeologically. And at one point there is um, a statue of a god placed in a temple. And this statue of the god is destroyed with so much anger. Now, one of the understanding of that is that this happened during this shift of power. So possibly some of the people in this island thought that you know, the divine forces were really angry that a god was represented as a male. And so it was destroyed with real anger. And, and then later on, eventually, we have in the pantheon, you know, the main character is a male. So I want to say that it is important to realize that everything eventually come to uh, a shift, to a change. Mm -hmm. So I don't think the point is not going back to, you know, the matriarchal, uh, imagery although it's very beautiful and you know they should completely be embraced as much as you know the patriarchal imagery is also beautiful because the, you know whoever considers themselves male is also divine everything is divine in the end so everything is divine of course the male as well but i think we are at a point now where we realize that these are uh, categories that do not longer fit the purpose because mm -hmm. our constructions and we are well beyond any of those categories and so i see this happening already with a lot of my students who go beyond uh, even <laughs> i live in new york state i just recently went for um, for my driving id uh, license and even now in new york state they are adding an x for people who don't recognize themselves as neither male or female and which was my case i don't recognize myself as a female because female is a construction a cultural construction which i don't believe because it's a mm -hmm. cult cultural construction that bring me to to be the object of, of a discourse i'm not the object i'm we're always the subject everyone is the subject and there is no subject anyway everything is so in, i believe that it's really happening already in many cases and i also see that some people fear this and i understand that and i don't blame them because a lot of the narrative that they grew up with didn't teach them that they, they were taught since a very young age that there are female that there are male that the female should dress these this colors and event the other and i have a young child mm -hmm. and i see this still happening in 2022 so of course it's going to take a while until you know we have shift and you know evolution takes sometimes thousands of years this is not the case it's, this is not going to take thousands of years but it's going to take a while but that's natural evolution of things so i i can only see a hybrid uh future regarding gender where everything and everyone is recognizing dignity for whatever they want to see themselves beyond any categorization what this this doesn't mean that then you know like of course i understand it in the medical fields uh, studying specifically specific bodies and also others is very important because in the medical trials often they were only male studied so then those results did not apply to many other people for instance to women so it's very important to recognize diversity but diversity is never true it's, it's much more than true it's, it's multiple and cannot be defined by two single terms that were constructed by thousands of years of, you know, uh, of, uh, of habits. And that's where we go into ethics. Ethos in Greek means habit. So those habits are, don't, do not longer fit us. So this is why 
it's uh, it's very to me obvious that this is where it's going to go although i can also see resistance and i understand that resistance i'm not blaming those people i'm not angry yeah. at those people actually i the only uh, thing that i can blame is all of us who are not embracing the ship more uh, uh, more holistically and understand that you cannot expect to have specific movies that are played in TV all day long and then expect why someone who is transgender can get killed in the bathroom because they were using the female or the male bathrooms. I mean, that's no surprise there with the kind of cultural representation that we still have everywhere for the most part. So that's very important to understand that if we uh, want to recognize diversity, like now, you know, the politically correct talk is all about diversity it's not just about talking about diversity it's recognizing really recognizing that diversity so recognizing that you know people are different that you cannot have one model for everyone and that you need to be understanding and open to discussion to to opening your own closures and this goes to all levels from political mm -hmm. to philosophical to educational to everything no I, I love that i love that piece and Again, you're coming at it from a very non-judgmental perspective, and you're you're talking about what you see, and, and you know, also what it sounds like what you want to see, and also at the same time, acknowledging what is and what has been, and that other that people will have different view. I mean, there's eight billion people on this planet. I don't think, I don't think we're supposed to agree on everything, but I, I do think we can get to understanding by through discussion. I have. One of my best friends, he's he's black, and during the Me Too, no, excuse me, during like the uh, Black Lives Matter movements, and I would ask him, I would say, hey, you know, can I ask you this thing about what it's like to be a black man, or can I ask you, like, is it okay for me to say this or think this? And what I always appreciate about our conversations is, is he gives me space to make mistakes, or he gives me he gives me space to ask him hard questions, and he'll respond back in a very open and loving way. And he'll say, well, it's not fair for me to get mad at you for something you don't know. He's like, it's the best thing that he can do is help me understand through his lens so that I can understand. And I think that's, I think that's how we get to a bigger universal state of here's what I believe. Here's what you believe here. What someone else has believed. None of them are inherently right or wrong. I actually believe they're all, they're perfect for the individual, but how can we get to a space where we can have discussions and talk and be open-minded and hear out people for what they think and what they believe? Because if we can only hear the the liberal side, then we're we're actually being very conservative. And we need to be open to the negative, the positive, and everything in between. And I, I just again love your your approach and the angle that you're coming at. Um, you know, very big, very heavy topics. Yeah, Nick, and and if you think about it, the only way that we can be here, that we can manifest, is through energy, is through in specifically our dimension is uh, mm -hmm. uh, in, in our dimension, energy must be vibrating. Otherwise, there is no energy. Now, there are many ways you can uh, vibrate a chord, for instance, of an instrument. You can, you know, play soft, play it hard. Now, this, I think, is very clear at the subconscious level of everyone. That's why everyone, you know, like is into something there can be mm -hmm. uh, discussion can be dialogue but can it be also anger and and hate and you think about the way a lot of people discuss topics they're not really discussing the topic they are allowing the topic to be alive by all the anger and, and hate they put into that without any change to the situation itself 
So for instance, you know, if I'm talking about uh, sexism and I do it with so much anger that uh, the anger itself is allowing the space to be still open because it, it allows the space to vibrate. But the vibration itself is a toxic vibration. Mm -hmm. So anyone who gets into the toxic vibration is going to get in intoxicated and get into that specific toxic uh, uh, environment. So I think that like, uh, if everyone agreed, we would not be here. They would be it. Yeah, would be like, with and, it, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and there is a one point that is a, a question that was asked uh, to, to the Buddha. What if, uh, that actually, I know this because I was uh, teaching, um, I teach global philosophies. So I teach all, all kinds of philosophies from any part of the world. And the specific course was back in 2014, I was teaching uh, Buddhism. And so one of my students asked me, so what happened if everyone at the same time got enlightened? And it was such a great question. I said, you know what? I tell you the truth. I cannot answer this question for you, but I'm going to look into that. So I looked into that and I found out that the question was actually asked to the Buddha. And the Buddha said, this is a question that you're not going to ask uh, because it's not something that, uh, well, I don't know if it was asked to the Buddha, but it is in the Buddhist scriptures. So I don't know if it comes directly from, from the Buddha or it's something that eventually was developed within the Buddha's discussions. But one of the answers that the Buddhists give to this specific question is that it's you don't ask this question because it's, it's pretty much never going to happen. And then I thought a lot about it. And of course, if you think about it, if it was going to happen, so there would be the, the manifestations that would dissolve and probably eventually you would have another cycle, another yuga, another. So mm -hmm. it's almost like, boom, the, the Maya is dissolved. There is no vibration anymore. Once you have no vibration, there is no energy that is gone. But then, of course, eventually the energy would manifest something else, which maybe would not be through vibration, would be through something else, but be another type of Maya. So, you know, these are the big, you know, cycles of existence and awareness and consciousness, all these layers. But so I think that it's, uh, it's very important to, to keep the dialogue open, but also understanding why are we doing that. So I like your perspective because the reason why you ask your questions to your friends is because you are sincerely committed to existential honesty and that's why probably your friends is actually answering to you and mm -hmm. i have a lot of african-american friends and some of them actually complain to me as telling me you know i have friends who are not african-american and ask well can i touch your hair okay and and they actually are upset when people ask them about their cultures and you know just go and, and you get african-american friends and, and connect to the african-american community you know and i totally get that point too so i believe that while the questions that are answered to these friends that i'm talking about they feel that they are not really for for existential honesty but for superficial curiosity so that's not going to change mm -hmm. anything in existence your friend perceived that from you the reason is not uh, a curiosity, but is existential honesty. How can I be more honest to existence? How can I know more about existence connecting to your experience and to your perspective and to your being and to your awareness? So I believe that in any kind of dialogue, the point is like, what is the goal of that dialogue? What is the goal of the dialogue? Because if the dialogue, they, and I see that in academia, often, the, 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 the goal of the dialogue is not uh, um, getting deeper in understanding existence, but it's the ego of the, of the speaker, how they can yeah, show their intelligence, time. you know? And that's okay too, it's the wrong game, but that's I, I also can see as a limit because then I, I found it 
the, you know, mm, and I enjoy doing that for a little bit. For my own ego, it's fun to, you know, to see that you can come successful. But, but it's a little game. It's a small game. It's not a big game. It's a small game that eventually you get, you know, like, okay, okay, that's game. You know, when you're a child, you do some games and eventually you go out of that. You know, some specific games are for specific ages and then you are older and maybe you don't play with wooden blocks anymore. And I feel the same way about that kind of game, you know, the intellectual game. It's, uh, it's, it's a game, but it's not enough if, uh, what is the intention behind that? So if the intention is awareness, then it's exciting and then can only be a dialogue. And this is why, I love your conversation. This is exactly what I'm doing also from the pandemic on. I uh, only accept lectures that are in the format of dialogue. And I always explain mm. the reason. The reason is that after the pandemic, I realized it clearly, physically, uh, emotionally, uh, digitally, that we are in this together, although we're all different, like uh, Rosie Bredotti, great costume philosopher says, but we are in this together. There is no way I can tell you my truth, because it, it would be still my truth, it would be not helping you, would very help you a little bit to be inspired, but that's not enough. I want to hear you. I want to hear what are your questions? Why do you want me to talk? Mm -hmm. And what are mm -hmm. your, 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 your perspectives? And, and why are you inviting me to this event? So I, yeah, yeah, I do sometimes, so you know. I've, um, there's, I've always said something about teaching yoga, which is, it's just what you were talking about there. It's, to teach yoga or to teach meditation is actually extremely challenging. I almost think to some extent impossible because it's how do I take my experience of a technique of a, a practice, run it through my system, feel it, and then through words, express that to you for then to you, for you to then have an experience. It's like, well, my experience and your experience, even though we're going to be using the same tool, they're going to be different. And that's just the beauty of it. It's like, yeah, I'm with you. Like, Hey, here's, here's what I did. What did you do? Oh, that's cool. I never thought of that. And then how do we together, you know, bring the third person into the room? I bring my best stuff. You bring your best stuff. And then we get to create a third entity, which is, which is greater than what either of us could have come up on our own. And I think that's how we move forward from this place of, of understanding. And I loved how you brought the, the energetics in of if we come from a clear intention of curiosity and growth and learning and oneness, it's pretty amazing to see how you can talk to people almost about anything and how, how differently you'll be received rather than if you come with expectations or assumptions or prejudices or, or energy that someone else can feel consciously or subconsciously. And then I'm thinking as you're talking, it's like, oh, well, this is how then as an individual human, by elevating my consciousness, by these conversations, by the people listening, then as each of us start to elevate our consciousness and our awareness, then collectively as a whole, now the individual individuality of each of us is affecting the totality and it's affecting the wholeness. And then it becomes this like all ships rise together experience where we're all, we're all learning and we're all growing in our own different perfect ways. And we get there through dialogue. You're right. And I've noticed that about the academic world. Someone wants to come up and expound on their thoughts and how smart they are. And it's like, well, that may work for, for that person, but how does it work for all of us? And that's, that's where I love these conversations going is how do people listen to us talk and they can take this piece or take one piece and, and everyone's going to take a different piece, um, which is a beautiful thing to remind ourselves of too. As you know, as you speak in front of 50 people, 50 people are getting a different, a different lesson, a different teaching, a different workshop. Um, and to sit in that space is very fun as a teacher, very fun as a, as someone that gets to share. 
You are so right, Nick. And, um, and one thing that I've been really thinking deeply again after, uh, after the, pan the pandemic was, uh, to me, a great, great teacher. And I know that brought mm -hmm. a lot of death and drama and, and pain to many people. So I don't want to, you know, to, to say that he was great or anything like that. But I learned so much in these two years and a half, so much. And I've been, I always try to be extremely honest because I always know that uh, my life is uh, the, the greatest work of art that I can ever manifest. And I, I mentioned at the beginning that, uh, that Nietzsche changed my life. And it, I was 16 year old and I, I read the Das Spock Zarathustra. And, um, and there is this passage, uh, which is also in other, in other writings, but is uh, the idea that uh, your life is, is a thought experiment. And uh, is the idea that your life, uh, what if your life could come back exactly the same over and over and over? And he's very serious about it. Uh, some people claim that he actually thought that was the case because in some of his personal notes, he mentioned this. But, but I definitely am sure that he thought it was a very powerful thought experiment, which is. And the idea is that, yeah, what if uh, your life was coming exactly the same back uh, and you would be living this exactly the same, everything from what you eat last night to the people you met to any thoughts you had, everything exactly the same. Would you say yes to this? And mm. if you were able to say yes, yes, he said, okay, you are this, the übermensch, which means overhuman, the one that can become, can, that can be the child again, the child, of course, not in age, but the full open mind, the full mm -hmm. open being, you know, they can say yes to existence, understanding the cosmic game. And so that really changed my life. And so in my life, I always try to go back and, and say, okay, if I had to live this again and again, I would say yes. So I'm always very careful with my choices because uh, if I would say no, then why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. So, you know, when the pandemic hit, I had to be extremely honest again to myself. So I, I, I stopped and I scrutinized my life and I realized that um, I was very passionate about posthumanism and education and I realized that um, I see changes, deep changes that must be done at least from what I see and perceive and so you were talking about dialogues, how, how important is that and uh, I am uh, very fascinated by many of the ways these teachings were given in the ancient times when philosophy was not an academic um, institution, but was actually people living together, uh, discussing uh, mm -hmm. together, eating, making the same food. I'm not talking about necessarily community living, but I'm talking about uh, wisdom. In fact, uh, philosophy comes from philos, which means love in ancient Greek, and sophia, which means wisdom. So it can be translated as the wisdom of love or the love of wisdom. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I really thought, okay, are we wise? Are we teaching how to be, I mean, you cannot teach how, can, how you can be wise, but you can be discussing what, how can, how can you be wise? How can we be wise in the 21st century? And something that I realized is that I think education, the way we are still enrolled in, comes a lot from the enlightened period when there was the industrial revolution, a shift that everyone had to be educated. And a lot of these people would become workers and they had to become, you know, like part of a, a system. So a lot of the teachings come with obedience, you know, like we have this, the students who are sitting and the teacher who is not sitting and who is talking most of the time. And, and I started to realize, okay, but 
what kind of location do we need now? Because that mm-hmm. it's kind of outdated because a lot of the issues that we have with unemployment is not that there are migrants coming and you know, taking all the jobs from uh, American people, but it's actually technological unemployment. A lot of the jobs that used to be done were automatic uh, jobs that machines can do much better than we do. And nowadays, if you want a job, you better be creative because those are the jobs that cannot be taken by anyone because art is unique and everyone, machines can make art and humans can make art and it is all different, it is all beautiful. So a creative mind is really important to get a job nowadays. So then we need to teach different messages. And so I really think that, you know, like schools and education should be much more experiential, much more connected to to manual activities, especially because we're getting into the digital age and then you always need balance in existence. And so I'm, I really, you know, the yoga, it's, it's a very interesting tradition because it has this at the core, the, the body-mind that are not body and mind, that is a, it's a compound that you cannot separate. And, and the teachings through the bodies to get wisdom that can affect the whole intellect and the science of the intellect. And I believe that this idea of like going beyond an education that is only based on intellectual power, it's really important. Otherwise, these teachings can become meaningless. And I saw a lot of my colleagues, many colleagues, very depressed during the pandemic because they had nothing to grasp anymore now that you know their intellectual engagement was gone and their students were gone and now it was them. And some of them got pretty depressed. So I believe that if we are teaching, so educere means taking someone out of pretty much the child stage, which is mm-hmm. tricky. You know, the child can be an amazing stage to be, or you can always go back to the child. But is there how can you navigate existence? Teaching how to navigate existence. And I think that we really need a big shift in education. And there has to be much more of an embodied education that come not just by, you know, claiming now we are about all about diversity, because diversity come recognizing the diversity of embodiments and different cultures that maybe have different habits. And the fact that the structures like schools look often like prisons, and that's not okay. Mm. So I, mm-hmm. you know, really believe in, in a big shift in education, that, which is done with kindness and respect for from all sides, but it's very much needed. Yeah, I mean, there's... It, it's interesting as you as you as you're talking. I'm thinking about actually a lot of my private coaching clients, and majority of them now are highly intelligent people. They're like they're they're brilliant, like they're brilliant minds. They're so much smarter than me. And then sometimes I'm in awe that these people come to me for for mentorship and coaching. But what they're they're coming for in general is what you're talking about is is the emotional intelligence, the physical intelligence, the awareness, the understanding that there's more to life. Than just understanding there's there's also this aspect of life of embodying embodiment and experience and and so often i get people that come to me that they've gone to harvard or stanford or mit and they've they've got great jobs and they work at big startups and they're they're executives and at the end of the day they've they've done this equation you know to kind of go back to what we talked about that they were modeled of if you do these things you know if you follow the rules at the end of the day, that the equation is going to add up to you being happy and fulfilled and living a meaningful life. And they get to this end of this equation and they're going, you know, what what happened? Why I was lied to? Like what and they don't understand. And it's like, well, yeah, you never decided what what you were gonna put on that list. And it's and the question I get so often, which is a great question, they go, Why wasn't I taught this? Why wasn't I taught? <laughs> 
that I have a physical body? Why wasn't I taught that I have emotions? Why wasn't I taught that there's more to life than, than what I'm, what I think I have access to. And it's, I don't think that has to be the way as you're talking about restructuring education. I think we can restructure education and it's through a much more holistic way. And I, you know, I think if I had kids, I would send them to Montessori school. I mean, and let them decide for themselves what they're passionate about and what they're excited about. Um, and that's how we're going to get to a place that is more meaningful and doesn't have the human at the center of it is if we start to understand that there's more to more to us than just our brains, more to us than just our minds, because we are a complete, we're complete beings with so much access and it's out there and it's accessible to people that want, that want it. And, and I know for me, part of my mission is, is sharing that and showing people that there is a different way of being and you're doing the same thing. And plenty of other people that have been on the show are doing the same thing. And, I think if we all continue to bring this in our own ways, through our own lenses, through our own practices, uh, then the people listening, the people we experience can can really learn and grow and they can then do this on their own and they can share it. And we're creating positive waves of, of transformation that are going to go far past what we're aware of and far past our lifetimes. And um, and I think that's how we get to a, a much more beautiful end state or much more beautiful future. Um, yeah. Is there... Is there anything you'd like to kind of wrap up with? Um, maybe how you envision the future or any tips on on how how the listeners here can start to shift and change their future into, into what they want it to be? Yeah, Nick, I would like to comment a little bit on the beautiful things that you just said. I, I believe that is uh, our responsibility to actually mm -hmm. share our visions because, you know, you were talking about your clients and, uh, and they say, like, why was I told this? Why I was told that this was going to be the re recipe for happiness, for success? Mm -hmm. And I can't tell you why. Because the people before us thought that that's how you become happy. And I tell you a very, you know, like, simple example. Um, so my grandmother, who was a peasant, who would come from a family where uh, they would, you know, they have their own land and they had, uh, at the time, you didn't need much money, but you were also, for today's standard, would be considered very poor. So they would, you know, use candles just a little bit after the, you know, the sun goes down and go to sleep uh, at 8 p.m. so that you don't use candles. And then in the morning you get up, you know, as soon as the sun rises and you work all day long and then you die pretty young. And, and so she was... You know, she always th thought that I was so lucky that you could just go to the supermarket and get anything you wanted. And she had yeah. absolutely, you know, like anything. You, she And this sounds hardcore, but that's the truth. So one time we were leaving town and we had a cat. And we gave the cat to my grandmother to take care of the cat. We gave the food of the cat to my grandmother. And when we come back, the cat was very different. Before the cat it was eating nothing all of a sudden the cat was eating anything you would give i was so excited about a piece of vegetable like i was like oh my god what happened to the cat they said well, what happened to the cat and she said like what do you mean like what what did the cat eat in this period because now she eats anything it's like you know like uh and she's like oh like you gave me all the meat like you kidding me you give meat to a cat so she ate the meat that was going to like you know the, the <laughs> cat food it is pretty hardcore i mean i'm a vegetarian but so she ate that and she would give to the cat anything like you know like all pasta or like vegetable and they can change radically and from there on the cat would eat anything and was so grateful <laughs> for being fed you know I was like wow what a change so anyway, so she was the kind of person, you know, like a, a person that like, um, and she lived through two world wars, like she had it, the whole package was like how tough, what a kind of life, you know, how tough you can choose your life and manifest mm -hmm. your life. 
So she thought that we were so lucky as a generation because she thought that having access to food 24 hours a day and to a house and her, her child, her, her, the brother of my mother died because the, the house was too humid and there was no heating and, and he died because of that. So her, she thought that we could not even understand how lucky we were. Yeah, sure. And, and that was their dream. The dream of the generation before ours, actually two generations before, was like, get money and get uh, physical goods and, and food and you're going to be happy. Now, we are in the situation, not everyone, but a lot of people are in a situation that they have physical goods. They can go to yeah. a store and get you know, food. And, and they, they have a house to, to live without you know, dying of, uh, of, uh, of a heart attack because there is humidity every, all day, all year long. We have all of that. But still, we're like, oh, what is I going? But that's not enough. Mm -hmm. So our responsibility is now to give this message to existence. Forget even about the next generation, to existence like the great masters did. And I will always be grateful to someone like Nietzsche or someone like Simone de Beauvoir or someone like, uh, um, like uh, you can name it. I mean, there have been so many people. Uh, now I'm talking about a specific tradition, but there is so many Lao Tzu, you, you name it. So these people took the time to give their deep understanding of existence to all of us. And wisdom, it is a temporal, but it's also connected to space-time. So, you know, some of these languages are still sexist or are still racist or are still ethnocentric or are still, but there is still some things that you say, oh, wow, but that's really wise. You know, you read the Bible, a lot of it's like, oh, but they, oh, but that's very really wise. Or if you read the Upanishads, and something's like, mm, oh, but that's very wise. Or if you read like oral history from Africa, oh, that, but that's very wise. So there is this element of wisdom that you find everywhere. But then what is the wisdom that we understand now? Because this is why we're here. These are, we are here to manifest the full awareness. And full awareness can only be um, on one side, connected to the whole special temporal um, manifestation but also to, to the now otherwise otherwise there is no uh, there is no uh, real understanding i cannot just say okay everything was written in the bible or, or by nietzsche or by uh, lao tzu or by simon de beauvoir then i'm outside or by the guru that's also risky if i think that the guru is everything then i have nothing I know that the guru means the people, the person who allow your, your light to shine, but I also see a lot of people lost into that, into that illusion that the guru has it all and they have nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, the idea is that if you know that you are everything, that you are all on some level, you also have <laughs> the great responsibility and the joy to share your vision. So for your clients, it's beautiful that they realize that and now it's that their responsibility to to bring that awareness out, their consciousness out, and, and be, you know, open paths and understanding for next generations to come. I love that. To manifest our full awareness now so that the generations to come can, can benefit from our time here and what we're seeing and, and maybe help them get ahead of the trappings waiting for them. Yeah. I mean, this has and been so course, fun. Nick you know what and the, the funny thing is that once you realize that you're everything you are still anyway the generations to come so if you bring these yeah. reminders if you keep coming back as an entity you know like i don't believe in reincarnation in the strict sense but there is no death in energy in chemistry energy doesn't die so if your energy is still going to be around because you're really enjoying the cosmic game of lila then it's good for everyone to have reminders <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, this has been so much fun. Thank you so much for your for your time and your insights. And I feel like we've really stretched and pushed, 
push push uh, some social limits and i'm excited to see what our listeners and uh, what future future generations to come get from this this audio if they ever find it um well, great. Well, I will put in in the notes uh, how people can get in touch with you. Um, is there anything that you'd like to let the listeners know around that you have something coming up or um, something you'd like to share that you have going on? Sure, Nick. Uh, well, first of all, again, thank you so much. And thanks so much for the listeners. Uh, they, uh, everyone is welcome to join. This is a global conversation that is happening in many levels. Uh, I have my own personal website if, if they want to connect directly with me, which is theposthuman.org. You kind of are going to write the link. We also have the Global Posthuman Network, which connects with many other um, regional uh, um, networks, for instance, the Latin American Posthuman Network, the Italian Posthuman Network, uh, the Indian Posthuman Network, uh, Chinese Posthuman Network, the Art Posthuman Network. So there are a lot of uh, uh, realities that are actually happening, opening the, dis the discussion and engaging with the discussion. So everyone and anyone is welcome. We didn't have the chance to talk about technology. That's something that maybe we'll do another, uh, you know, another conversation on because it's very important to understand technology yeah. from this post-dualistic perspective, but we, this is for next time. So I just want to say that um, don't get too attached to your human identity. That also is, is a construction. You are much more and much less than that. You are everything. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you much, so much for listening. And um, for everyone out there, be happy, be healthy, be well, and uh, sending everyone much love. Thank you for your time, Francesca. And I uh, look to having you on again in the future. Thank you so much, right. Nick. And thanks so Bye. much. Everything. Peace and appreciation. All right. Ciao. And Nick, a little note. Thanks for listening in. If you want any more information about our guest today, uh, about any of the sessions or, or offerings that were presented, uh, as well as about myself, Nitin, or Nick here, you can find all the links to our websites and how to get in touch with us through the episode notes. And as always, don't forget, if you like what you heard, share it with friends and family, spread the love, spread the collective consciousness, and help us raise the consciousness as a whole.